The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oil field service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development. Welcome to the Energy and Transition Podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. I am your host and joined as usual with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. How are you, Dan? I am great. Josh, We are coming. a good one. It is. Yeah, sorry. I jumped on. I, I told you I had my espresso earlier, so I'm just eager to get going. We're coming to you live from Houston, Texas in the Fletcher Azul Podcast Studio and uh, another great edition of the uh, Energy and Transition podcast. What have you been up to? This is, we're in the middle, the, the doldrums of the summer here. Are you having a good summer so far? Burning up in Houston, Texas. Um, last time we got together, it was during the energy meltdown, and so I was bemoaning uh, the short-sightedness of energy investors, and I think we've had a little bit of a recovery since then. Now the big topic of, of kind of the summer is what's going to happen with Russia and they're going to cut off gas to Europe and we're going to freeze people in the winter. So um, no shortage of interesting things to talk and think about in, in the energy patch, but life is good, man. You know, I was in your office yesterday, actually. We were meeting with your, your group talking about your Teams Fest in Austin. I mean, that's going to be a great event. But before we even talk about that, your office, you have a new office in Houston. We did. We moved into uh, 100 WA, which is sort of in between downtown and Memorial Park, right there on Memorial Drive. And um, we have no shortage of space. So we're, we're ready for squatters if, if in, needed. In that space, there's a, uh, a basketball. What I mean, I know that's not called a basketball hoop. A uh, Papa shot. Papa shot. Yep. Do you ever get over and play I, on that thing? I, all I know is money changes hands <laughs> on Papa shot and ping pong. And... Um, I've learned long ago not to not to bet. You're on, not going on, on those, over so, there. Yes, I wait until everybody's gone and I take shots at, at night on the way home. Oh, well, okay, that's pretty good. Well, yes, when no one's watching. Yeah, we were on the other side of the building and, and we walked over and saw you know kind of the cool area, if you will. And I said, "Man, you guys got shortchanged over there." And they were like, "Well, we've got a dartboard." And I'm like, no, "Dartboard is not a papa shot." Yeah. So it's fun. Yeah. Well, it's congrats on the new building. Thank you. So yeah, very fun. Um, yeah, we've got a pretty. This is a. So I'm not from Houston, and I've lived here, you know, almost 20 years now, oil and gas business the whole time. So there's a couple of really key names that have always been around the world that um, that I've played in, been around, and Dan Pickering is one of them, obviously. And there's another name that's uh, kind of been around, and today he is our guest. Would you like to introduce one of our guests today? Absolutely. This so, is a special guest for you, I yes, assume, to, inter this to is, introduce. This is a, it, it's, it was an interesting prep for me because as I was thinking about how I was going to introduce Bobby Tudor, um, I said, okay, well, let me just print off and see what his bio reads. And so this is, this is really interesting. Um, currently CEO of Artemis Energy Partners. We'll talk about that in a little bit. Um, 
was my partner for 15 years at, at Tudor Pickering Holt. But there are some other interesting things that are that are on Bobby's bio these days. Chairman of the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, and there are so many I have to read them off. Um, you know, past chair of the Greater Houston Partnership, Rice University Board of Trustees, Board of Advisor for the Baker Institute for, for Public Policy, um, National Advisory Board for the Tulane Center of Energy Law, uh, Board of Directors of the National Petroleum Council, the Houston Symphony, Good Reason Houston, and MD Anderson Board of Visitors. So uh, for a boy from Pineville, Louisiana, you've come far, Bobby, and you, you, you have done and do a lot. So we're thrilled to have you here. Thanks for being well, here. Well, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Josh. Um, what a treat. Happy happy to be here. Welcome. Welcome. It's uh, I always ask people if they've been on podcasts before, but I know you have. You actually have your own kind of version of these as well that you guys are doing how do you like doing how, what do you how do you it's, find it's, this media it's, it's great it's been a it's been a great new forum i think particularly for the topic of energy transition actually because it's a it's a topic in which um we're still early days there's a there's a lot of misinformation uh and a lack of information and i think the podcast format is a is a great way to uh help make people smarter and more well-informed and hopefully ultimately get us to get us to good solutions for what is what is a set of really, really challenging problems. Yeah. Well, we aim to be the dominant podcast. <laughs> so our goal is to make sure that we always and and remain number one. We're, I don't know. We're definitely not number one yet, but we're going to get there. Dominant so. and good. Dominant and good. Yes, yes. exactly. So, Bobby, um, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about you personally a little bit later. Um, but you mentioned kind of the importance of energy transition that was sort of driven home to me when you were chair of the greater Houston partnership. Uh, tell us a little bit, I think you get to pick your focus area when, when you step into that role and you chose energy transition. So tell us why. Right. Well, um, for some of your, some of your followers might not know much about the greater Houston partnership. The greater Houston partnership is effectively the economic development organization for Houston. Think, think of it as a, a chamber of commerce on steroids, if you will. Almost all of our leading companies are members. And um, the partnership is engaged in a whole range of, uh, of activities, but most of which are oriented around economic development and economic prosperity for, for the region. And uh, I've, I've, I'm a longtime board member of the organization and was elected chair of the organization for the 2020 calendar year. And when you're chair of the partnership, um, the perk, maybe the sole perk, hmm. uh, is you get to you, you get to choose your area of focus for the for the year. The um, the chair right before me was Scott McClellan. You might know Scott. He's the HEB guy. If you think of the, the JJ Watt commercials, you know Scott McClellan is a really great guy. Ran HEB here for quite a long time. Dan Pickering's cousin, by the way, was a little little uh, factoid. In any case, Scott uh, chose public education and the importance of of the business community engaging um, on the topic of public in education as a, as a great proxy for future prosperity for us in our region. So I, it, it was my, my turn at bat, and I decided to go with the topic of energy transition. And um, I, I, I describe it as my, as my Nixon to China moment hmm. uh, in, in the sense that it was a topic that was clearly highly relevant to Houston highly relevant to uh, to the uh, really all of our companies in some form or fashion, but it wasn't being talked about 
publicly. There was some sense that, well, if if uh, if you were advocating for an energy transition, you were in some sense disloyal to the incumbent mm-hmm. energy business in uh, in Houston, and. I thought that that was a, a really, um, uh, I'm, I'm not sure the word is incorrect, but but sort of a false narrative, if you will. Mm-hmm. You, you, don't, you don't have to be against the incumbent energy industry uh, to, to be in, in favor of a transition to a, a world with much lower CO2 emissions. So in any case, uh, I decided we really needed to attack that head on. Uh, so I gave a speech uh, at the at the partnerships kind of opening annual meeting, uh, in which I kind of laid out my uh, my reasoning for why this this needed to be a major focus of the businesses uh, in our region. And I think the good news is it hit a nerve, mm-hmm. uh, and it hit a nerve in a good way. the The feedback that that uh, I got for the speech was was very positive. Uh, I think people were kind of waiting to be galvanized around, gal- you know, kind of call to action yeah. uh, around it. And when I say people, I really mean everyone from super major oil companies to uh, a guy that, you know, owns a bunch of dry cleaners, mm-hmm. right, and, and everybody in between. And, and Bobby, uh, you said you had a, f- in that speech, you had a couple of kind of key issues or what, what was, what were you saying? Well, I really, talk? I really framed it in, in terms of, um, of economics. And the, the sort of my fundamental thesis uh, is that um, Houston as a region remains very highly leveraged to the incumbent energy world. Uh, it's been a great place to be, right? Houston, Greater Houston was the fastest growing major metro in America by a lot from 2008 to 2018. By a lot. One, 1.1 million new residents in that time. I looked up it's just that's a lot of it's new just people. incredible yeah uh, fantastic job creation fantastic uh, economic prosperity and uh, and our, our community uh, broadly prospered because of it well what else happened from 2008 to 2018 US oil production went from 5 million barrels to 13 million barrels during mm-hmm. that same period of time an unprecedented amount of growth Nat- natural gas production grew dramatically also. Dan, you might know those numbers, but probably something like 60 Bs to, I don't know, 80 or 90 yeah, Bs during, exactly. during that period yep. of time. So we had just incredible top line growth in the incumbent energy uh, energy business. And we also had a, an explosion of activity in the petrochem sector, primarily dr- uh, driven by the fact that we had this very low cost natural gas power source uh, proximate to our region uh, in in the Haynesville primarily, but so the so the combination of what was going on in the oil markets and what was going on in the gas markets was just mind blowing. And Houston, Texas, because we're the global center of the energy world, was the great beneficiary of all that. I mean, we just had it was a great time. And remember that this was a time when much of the rest of the company uh, country was was really struggling to get out of the financial crisis, right? 08, 09, 10, 11, you know, growth in America was was very anemic generally speaking. I saw a statistic once that said, you know, of every new job that got created in America from 2008 to two, I think it was to 2012 maybe. So kind of on the heels of the financial mm-hmm. crisis, something like 50% of those were in Texas. Wow. And over 50% of those were in greater Houston, Texas. Uh-huh. It was just, it was incredible, right? 
So anyway, we had this period of really explosive growth all tied to the shale revolution and what was going on in the, in the oil and gas business. But those days are over. They're over. And, and my argument is that they're not coming back in the same way. Now, that's not to say that we're done with energy cycles. It's not to say that the incumbent oil and gas business is not going to be a really important industry to the world for a very long time, because it is. It's not to say that we can't have new companies formed and created. It's just to say that level of growth is highly, highly unlikely. And I, I you know, it's funny, I, I in, in my position now at, at what we call HETI, the Houston Energy Transition Initiative, I spend a lot of, lot of time talking with, with energy industry leaders from the incumbent industry. No one disagrees with that. They think there could be a little growth, but at the end of the day, you know, we have 100 million barrels or so of, of global oil demand, and it'll probably continue to grow, you know, a bit uh, for the course, over the course of the next uh, decade. But the likelihood that, that the U.S. will take share in the way that it took share during that period of time is really low. So we can't assume that we're going to have that, that kind of economic activity in the incumbent industry over the course of the next decade or two that we had in the last decade or two. Uh, and so the question becomes, well, if, if job creation and is a good proxy for economic prosperity, where is it going to come from? Uh, and, and, and to take a step back, right now about 40% of total jobs in our region, in the greater Houston region, are tied to the incumbent oil and gas and petrochemical industry, 40%. About 20% are what we call direct jobs, meaning you work at ConocoPhillips mm -hmm. or you work at uh, Dow Chemical. But another 20% are what we call induced jobs, meaning you work at TPH or you work at Oilfield 360 Podcast or you run the Subway Sandwich Shop at the ConocoPhillips headquarters or you're a lawyer at Vincent Elkins and your clients are energy companies. I'm surprised it's only another 20%. So really. it's about 40% in total. but. That is more concentration in one industry than you see almost anywhere in the world, mm. really. That is a lot of concentration. We have 25 Fortune 500 companies. I think 19 or 20 out of 25 are from the incumbent energy world. Uh, we have a handful that are not Cisco, Waste Management, Academy, Sports and Outdoors, mm -hmm. you, know, four, you know, four or five. Everything else is from the incumbent energy world. And we're kind of saying, mm, we don't see a bunch of growth. Uh, and so, so we start asking ourselves, well, how do we generate economic prosperity? And I'm suggesting that while we may not see a bunch of growth per se in the incumbent industry, um, it is a great launching pad, it being the incumbent industry, is a great launching pad for participating in the energy transition where there is going to be a ton of growth. So let me, let me ask you a quick question here. I, I hear you today, how close is what you're saying today to your 2020 speech and your when you your opening remarks? Well, we've actually come a long way uh, in just in just that period of time. No, I'm in, just in I'm, I'm curious to know because I can imagine hearing you talk today. Mm -hmm. This sounds right. We're listening, and we, there's a lot of development in the last six months, 12 months, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. But I can just imagine coming out of Bobby Tudor's mouth in 2020. Uh, you know, the the Tudor name in the oil and gas, what you're calling uh, incumbent. That was probably a pretty shocking. Yeah, uh, it, it it was in speech. in in the sense that I I um, just I professionally was very identified with the incumbent right. industry, 
and so to hear, and, and I love the incumbent industry. It's been a fantastic place to work. I'm a big fan uh, of, the, of the people who work in it. It's really fun. It's interesting. It's a great sort of collision of science and geopolitics and policy and economics and markets. It's fantastic. And uh, we, as citizens of the world, owe a great debt of gratitude to the incumbent oil and gas industry. Um, so that's where I started from. I'm just suggesting for greater Houston, Texas, and as a matter of economic prosperity, we should not be counting on the same kind of growth from that industry in the next several decades mm -hmm. that we had in the previous decades because of the energy transition. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And Bobby, do you, so when you think about the energy transition and you're, you're talking about economics and, and, and sort of the, the math of it all, if you will, um, are you, do you think about the science piece of this? Are you uh, the you know globe's warming guy, or do you do you think about it that way? Do you care about that, or do you say oh, the energy transition is happening? How do we participate? Yeah, well, uh, um, I would say both, which which is to say, I'm persuaded that global warming is happening. Okay, uh, and I'm persuaded that if left unabated, um, it is highly likely to create meaningful issues for the globe mm -hmm. <laughs> over the course of the next period mm -hmm. of time, whether that's, you know, two years or 50 years. Now, I'm, uh, you know, b being someone who's lived in financial models all their life, you know, mm -hmm. kind of what I do as an investment banker is run financial models. It's hard not to be skeptical of, of someone making conclusions around a climate model for 50 years from now. <laughs> right. That being said, it, I, I'm persuaded that that uh, global warming is is happening and that human source CO2 emissions uh, and, and other emissions, but primarily CO2 emissions are a, big, are a big component of that. And one of the things I said in my speech is that we as an incumbent industry have both uh, a responsibility and an opportunity uh -huh. uh, to be leaders in, in, this, in this period of transition. When I say responsibility, what I mean is, is not that we've been selling cigarettes to children and we need to stop. Okay. I do not see it that mm -hmm. way uh, at all. Um, there is enormous social utility in fossil fuels. It has made the world a better place. It saves lives. Uh, it, is, it has been core to getting literally billions of people out of poverty and will continue to be. What I mean is, is that the solutions for these excessive CO2 emissions uh, are likely to be found, at least in large part, in the incumbent industry. And that if the incumbent industry doesn't really participate in this as a partner, it's not likely to be a successful endeavor. So we have a responsibility to be partners in, in helping solve these challenges. And I, when I say these challenges, I really mean dual challenges. And, and you know, this is a point that, that sometimes uh, gets, gets sort of lost. And, and a lot of the environmental kind of true believers don't like to talk about it this way, but, uh, but my view is it's, it's central to the challenge, which is that we have a dual challenge. We have to, we, we have to supply reliable and affordable energy today, today, uh -huh. and at the same time, dramatically drive down CO2 emissions. 
So it's not simply a challenge of driving down CO2 emissions. We have to do it while we're providing reliable and affordable energy. And in some sense, I think what's happened in the world in the last six months is kind of it's sort of crystallized that point. It's a wake up uh, call. It's a wake, it's a wake up call, and that's a healthy that's a healthy thing. But but I, I'm talking about what we're seeing happening in Europe and gas yeah. and Russia and yeah. all that sort of. Is that yeah. what you're talking yeah, yeah. about? Yeah, that, that's the, that's what I'm referring to, and and the the effect of extremely high. Uh, energy prices, uh, not not just in Europe, but all over the world, right? Uh-huh. Nothing like getting a politician's attention better than someone having to pay $5, you know, for gasoline. Can I ask uh, maybe a simple question, but it's the words, my, my mom was an English teacher, so mm-hmm. words really get me sometimes. And I, I hear you keep saying the word incumbent. And I know mm-hmm. this is elementary in some ways, but, you know, you hear legacy, you hear traditional, I, with all... I've never heard anybody call it the incumbent yeah. industry. Is there a reason you're saying that word? Well, is that ju- just because more it, is the, it is the one that's in place, mm-hmm. right? We, we, have, we have an energy system globally in place that is driven by fossil fuel production and the burning of those fuels to produce power. Uh, you know whether it's whether it's electricity or transportation fuel or or you name it and our our plumbing globally is set up to feed that that industry and so I call it incumbent because it is the one in place today and and the challenge is how do we tinker with it change it adapt it transition it to something that looks that, that that looks quite different. I mean, it is. It's a more active word that, yeah. than when you think about it. Then yeah, it's where we have to do something. Right. So I get it. Right. Okay. Right. And, and Bobby, when you say, so two questions. One is, is we got to do something. Twenty fifties, what the IEA seized on. Um, do you think that's the right time frame? And then, talk a little bit about what you think the right technology is. How do we get there? You know, what's what are the right things to tinker with or focus on? Yeah, I don't know enough to know whether 2050 is the right time frame. In some sense, you just you pick a time <laughs> and you set yeah. goals uh, and you start you start chasing the goals. You know, my gut tells me it's all going to take longer and be harder than than people kind of, you know, imagine it to be. That being said, uh, technology can change the game and change the game, you know, in a in a hurry. Uh, and the choices and investments that we make today are going to really, really matter uh, in that regard. And it's going to matter for what, what happens to emissions, not just in the next three to five years, but what happens to emissions in the next you know, 30 to 50 to, to 100. Um, so uh, what, what I do know is it's going to take a lot of money, <laughs> and it's going to take uh, everybody doing their part. You know, one of my one of my gripes with the, with the current sort of dialogue around this uh, around this issue is that all the focus is on supply. How do we change sources of supply? And there's no focus on demand, mm-hmm. right? And and how do <laughs> what, what can we do to actually drive down demand? And but, but, but does it? Because people want stuff. People right? want stuff. People don't want to change behavior. Well, my my point is demand. the politics of supply are a lot easier than the politics yes. of demand. Yep. Right? So it's, it's one thing to, to say, look, if, you know, if ExxonMobil and Shell and BP would just do the right thing, yeah. then we can, you know, we can solve this problem. That's just not true. 
I mean, th- there's think, just so think much about, behind that one sentence. <laughs> well, well, think about it this way: if you took the total capital budgets of the eight largest oil companies in the world, it is in the ag- aggregate probably 150 million dollars, something like billion. Uh, I'm sorry, 150 billion dollars, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. I'm, you know, I'm thinking, Dan, I don't know, 15 to 20 billion dollars of CapEx for eight companies mm-hmm. or something like that. Um, if they if they totally changed their business models and said, you know what, we're not going to spend another dollar on fossil fuels. By the way, that would be a terrible thing for the world if they decided to do that. But let's just say they do. And there are a lot of people out there who wish they would. Yes. <laughs> let's just say they do. Well, what happens? Okay. Currently, the IEA says we're spending about $900 billion a year on all things energy transition related globally. And that to meet the 2050 goals, we need to be spending about $4 trillion a year between now and 2050. Say that one more time for the audience. We're spending about $900 billion, and we need to spend about $4 trillion. That's a big gap. A year. Right, so so we're talking uh, almost thirty years of uh, an increase of three trillion a year. <laughs> a, a year, you know, it's, at some point the math just becomes silly. It's mind-boggling. Right, yeah. it's, it's mind-boggling. My point, though, is that okay, if those eight oil companies spent all of their capital budget on this, would go from spending nine hundred billion a year to spending one point, you know, oh five, oh five trillion, and would still be three trillion a year short. Right, uh, and so it, it th- that anecdote uh, or example is is really meant to get to the scale of the challenge, and in particular the economic scale of the challenge, uh, which is which is just mind blowing. And that's why that's why I'm biased to say, mm, you know, it's going to take a long time and a lot of money and be really hard to make this happen. And I think the biggest challenge is just going to be to keep the world, you know, focused on it. Right. Yeah. And so, I think I think it's a it's a great point. It's and it it's going to be governance. It's going to be you know all the capital markets. It's going to be the incumbent companies. It's going to be the new companies that get developed and, and built. Um, and you're you're couching it in whether or not it all gets done economically is a topic that Josh and I go back and forth on on this podcast a lot about. You know, probably some money wasted along the way. Yeah, where um. Where do you think capital, where do you think people need to deploy capital? What's the, you talked about demand and we, should, we ought to do something about demand, but mm-hmm. let's go to the supply side okay. and say, okay, how are we gonna do that? Well, on the, on the supply side, I'm a big believer in the importance and future of all things CCUS related. And, CCUS, uh, carbon, carbon capture, capture, use, and storage. Yeah. We did and, a good podcast on that. Uh, I, 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 I actually did see that podcast with, with David Phillips, who Dan and I have known a, yeah. long, a long time. David's a really uh, smart guy. I thought the podcast was, was excellent, by the way. <laughs> oh, no. But okay. um, the, the reason I, I'm a big believer there is the, the, the science around it works today. You, we know how to do it, right? Um, and... And the challenge is primarily an economic one, where we're ma- making it a, a truly economic uh, proposition uh, is still in in most places uh, quite far away w- without major subsidies. But the alternative, it seems to me, 
is to effectively replumb the world's energy systems. And I think that's just too expensive and will take too long. And, and, and therefore, using technology like CCUS, particularly in difficult to abate industries like steel or cement and power generation, um, shows great, great promise. We can make, we can make big improvements very quickly uh, and we should just do that. You know, if, if, I were, if I were the advisor to the government and they asked, well, where is, you know, we want to spend, we, we have, pick a number, a trillion dollars of government money to spend to attack this issue uh, in the course of the next decade. Where should we spend it? I would put all my chips on CCUS because that's where I think because the technology is already there, we can we can make a big difference really quickly. So anyway, Dan, CCUS, I'm mm-hmm. a big uh, I'm a, I'm a, a big believer in CCUS. Now the problem with CCUS is it doesn't work everywhere. As you as you guys heard from David in in your podcast, there are many parts of the world that simply don't have geology to store it. So there is no geology in Japan. Period, as I understand it, anyway. That is that you could that you could use either onshore or offshore uh, to to uh, to do large scale uh, carbon dioxide storage. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are other parts of the world where it works quite well. You know, in the in the U.S., we can do it offshore, and we can also do it in many places onshore. Um, you know, Europe is a bit more challenged, right? It works well in the North Sea, uh, but uh, less well generally onshore in, in Europe. So there are places, it, it's not going to be the panacea. It's not going to be the one thing that sort of solves our climate crisis, if you will. But man, it can be an effective tool. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a big believer. Okay. I'm a big, I'll, big I'll believer. circle back. You said, it, it's, it's interesting, again, this law of large numbers, hard to get your, your mind around them. You said, let's assume the government has a trillion dollars to spend over 10 years. Um, we need to spend forty trillion over those ten years if your numbers are right. And and you talk about a trillion being a big number, but it's actually not relative right. to the size so, of the the, right, the, pro- of the, problem. Right. the problem or issue or challenge. Right. So I just bring that back up to highlight well, the, the issue of I'm, scale. I'm actually glad you brought that. I, uh, we did one with uh, Jim Hughes, a mm-hmm. podcast with him, and I think I've always said that I'm going to be the biggest winner of this entire podcast because I get to hear the different perspectives of, of uh, with Dan and the other uh, host is Leslie Beyer. Jim came in and he was the first one just very matter-of-factly that said we have the, the projects of 10 or 20 million dollars just don't move the needle basically. You're talking billions and tens of billions of dollars and for someone that's you know worked in big projects I mean a 10 billion dollar project is a big project and he was acting like you need many, many of those for even for it to move the needle at all. That was the first time in this podcast where I realized just how vast this issue really is. Yeah. And and just to hear you say this in, in, in you know the conversation you guys are having, a trillion versus four trillion. Or excuse me, yeah, trillion. God, I'm, I trillion, almost I almost want to be four trillion a year. I know. Yeah. I, I almost want to correct myself, but that's annually. Yeah. 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 That's, that's annually. Well, and and the time frames also. You know, it's 2022, 2050s, 28 years from now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I just encourage the listeners to think about what you were doing or how old you were 28 years ago. I mean, it's a long period of time. This is a big, yeah. long-lasting thing that we're going to be dealing with for a while. So, Bobby, one of the things you mentioned, you mentioned HETI, Houston Energy Transition Initiative. Um, 
So what are what are, what are we doing in Houston? Okay. What's happening? So uh, on the on the heels of uh, my, my speech at the at the partnership, and then uh, my work as chairman that year, we put together something that under the umbrella of the partnership mm-hmm. called HETI, and it stands H-E-T-I, Houston Energy Transition Initiative. And uh, it's, it's, it's meant to be um, an, an initiative that uh, develops strategy and then works collaboratively with our Houston companies to drive that strategy forward for the region on all things energy transition related. Uh, and the com- so we put together a steering committee of our of our companies, and it's everyone from Exxon Mobil and Shell and BP to Baker Hughes to Halliburton to Centerpoint to Dow Chemical to Enbridge to Plains, um, Baker Hughes, Hall- you know, et cetera. So uh, uh, incumbent oh, companies only? Um, no, no. So uh, some of our industrial companies, petrochem companies as well. Uh, like Lyondell or Dow yep. Chemical, also Sonova, mm-hmm. uh, which is a, a leading um, residential solar company based here, is, is part yeah. of our steering committee. One one thing I'd point out that is interesting is that we don't have a lot of these big companies yet no. in Houston, we, we, right? We, we, I mean, I hope that five years from now, there are more names that everybody knows well, that are well, I, part I, of that. In, in one sense, we don't. In another sense, we do, Dan, because if, if you... If you added up every capital dollar mm-hmm. that's being spent on this problem, yep, I would uh, across the United States, I would put to you that there is no place that is spending the kind of capital dollars on the program on, on the problem mm. uh, as we are in Houston. Interesting. It's just buried in our big companies. Yes, you know, it's yeah. buried in Shell. It's buried in BP. Uh, you know, our big engineering companies, you know, Bechtel, huge presence here. Mm. Jacobs Engineering, huge presence here. Fluor, huge presence here. Mm-hmm. Um, the the big industrial gas companies, Linda, Praxair, they're not Houston-based companies. They're all here. Okay. Right? And so there is actually a ton going yep. on in, in the space in Houston. And part of, part of what we need to do at Hetty is – have the world understand that. Yeah. You know, and, and, and you know, as, as with a lot of other issues in Houston, uh, we tend to have a bit of our chip on our shoulder, I think, uh, around this. But uh, I think it's true that much of the world heretofore has seen Houston not as a partner in attacking this problem, but rather as an impediment to the problem. Mm-hmm. And number one, it's not true. <laughs> uh, lies. Uh, and, all and, lies. And it's all lies. But 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 number two, the perception of it hurts us in Houston. It hurts our ability to attract talented young mm-hmm. people to come to live here, right? They they want to be a part of the new world. They want to be a part of solving big problems, uh, et cetera. And uh, my <laughs> my my quip in this area is: look, if if what you want to do is work on a you know developing the next data app, you should probably just go to Austin. But if what you want to do is work on solving the world's most vexing challenge, which which is the energy transition, you could you should come to Houston, Texas, because this is where it's going to get worked out. Uh, and I, I think increasingly um, that's being proven to be the case by what our companies are doing uh, and what our academic institutions are doing and, and the startup community and venture capital. Dan, and you, you said a minute ago, you, you want more of these companies in Houston. Where are these companies now that if they exist? Are these Boston, New York, 
some California. Where are these companies that you would say exist now? Yeah, it's well, it's it's it depends on the space. Yeah, right. So, um, if uh, there's there's a group we um, at the partnership got to uh, were, were kind of helpful in, in getting to locate to Houston called Greentown Labs. Yeah, and Greentown Labs is a it's a uh, great place an energy tech uh, incubator, mm-hmm. if you will, and it started in Boston, primarily centered around MIT, and it would be some postdoctoral fellow at MIT who has a whiz bang new idea and wants to build a company around it. And Greentown Labs would give them lab space and a home and a network and help them try to turn an idea into an early stage company and then an early stage company into a mid-stage company, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So, um, and and uh, they had good success uh, there. And we went to them and said, we would like you guys to be in Houston. And they said, oh, that's kind of old economy. That's old energy. That's not really on brand for Greentown Labs. And, I, and we said, let us, let us try to convince you otherwise. Long story short, um, Emily Reichert, who, who leads, leads Greentown Labs, uh, got to know Houston, spent some time down here, and ultimately jumped in with both feet saying, you know what? There is no solution to these problems uh, that doesn't involve Houston. Uh-huh. We need to be in Houston, Texas. And so about a year or so, a year and a half or so uh, now, they moved here. Uh, they took together an old Fiesta. They took yeah. over an old Fiesta right supermarket spa- there, yeah. space uh, in, the, in, in the kind of midtown uh, area, right across the street from the ION, the ION being a Rice University-oriented um, um, uh, kind of innovation center as well. It took them, in, in Boston, it took them six years to get to 60 companies in this space. In Houston, it took them one year to get to 60 companies in the space. Now, we're later in the energy transition, but the point is there is just an explosion of activity in the space in Houston re- related to these, to these challenges. Now, is that explosion because Houston just kind of woke up and said, oh, we've got a big problem we need to solve? Or is that explosion because people in Houston said, hmm, there's economic act- <laughs> opportunity here. There's money to be made, right? Let's, let's, let's start a company that, that solves a problem because that's the way you ultimately create a bunch of value is, is, by, is by solving a problem. I think it's probably both, frankly. It, and, timing as well. And, and timing, timing as well, but, but the point is, there's an explosion of activity around it. It's very exciting, and Houston is quick becoming a real center for what's happening in the energy transition. There's interesting pockets in Boston, you know, in the space of mobility, for example, and all things software-related. Silicon Valley remains really important to that. In in battery storage, you know, battery storage is a is a big issue in the transition generally, and 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 developing uh, large-scale utility-scale battery storage. Is, is a really important kind of piece of the puzzle. That work has tended to happen in, in big university centers uh, around the company like, like Livermore Labs in, in Berkeley or at MIT. But another big center is here in Houston uh, at, at Rice and, and, and UT and a and and U of H also do a lot of work in, the, in that space. So one of the things we've been after is to rally our academic institutions to really lean into the, his, the space, collaborate with each other, 
put people on the ground at the ION and in, in Houston and, uh, and uh, you know, put their research muscle into the problem as well. Because a lot of the, a lot of the challenges of the energy transition are technological challenges and um, ultimately are, you know, resolved by scientists and our best scientists sit both in our companies, but to a large degree in our high quality Academia. research institutions. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And is that rolled in? Is that rolled in through Hetty somehow? Yes, or? yes, and so and so Hetty uh, Hetty uh, has a um, higher education initiative where uh, we are we are working collaboratively collaboratively with with all of those institutions to do to mm -hmm. do exactly that. Um, and Bobby, I've I've always wondered. You talked about Houston Energy Tech Transition Initiative being twenty five plus companies mm -hmm. on the steering committee working collaboratively but but i mean the history of the oil patches has been you know companies compete for the best acreage in the permian uh, aren't they going to be competing for the best ideas in energy transition so how does collaboration and capitalism kind of all yeah. work together yeah you know it, it's it's funny in some sense uh, back, back to the incumbent industry word josh in some sense the incumbent industry does exactly what you just described uh dan but in some sense, it's it's actually uh, more accustomed to working as partners in big projects than most other industries. You know, when Ford decides they're going to build a big, um, you know, EV plant in Tennessee, they don't go to Toyota and GM and say, let's share the cost, right? Mm-hmm. But when Shell is drilling a big prospect in the Gulf of Mexico, they go to Total and Murphy and yep. say, let's share the cost. So mm -hmm. in some sense, there actually is a, a, a law, and the, not, the, not just the cost, the risk, right? So in some sense, there is m more of a tradition of companies working collaboratively in this business in, in energy than in most other most other sectors of the economy. That being said, intellectual property matters to the to these companies, particularly in the services sector and and uh, et cetera. And and so, you know, when people see an economic opportunity, they want as they want as much of it to themselves as they feel like they can uh, afford. Yeah. And they want as little of the risk. <laughs> Uh, that goes with that as they can afford. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, look, those are those are the challenges here. And in a world of really big numbers, yeah. as as we're talking about, this is not a problem that's going to be solved by any one company's balance sheet. Mm -hmm. It's going to take it's going to take the whole industry. So I, I sorry, I, I just encourage people to go online and check out Houston.org. There's a really good page about uh, Hetty and you know some of the explanation there. And then also, I, I was lucky enough to tour. Uh, Greentown Labs not too long ago within the last two or three months um, and I was really blown away by how many um, traditional or incumbent um, oil and gas companies energy companies are up there supporting all the different uh, in, I don't want to say uh, inventors and uh, young entrepreneurs whatever you want to call those types of uh, companies that are in there um, and the camaraderie amongst the people in there was really an interesting thing as well like you can see how you know person one and person two are openly sharing ideas with each other, whether they're in the same, you know, one guy was talking about offshore wind, 
and the other one was talking about uh, algae, you know, energy creation. Yep. And so, but they're still talking and sharing ideas. So it's really a collaborative group over there that just, I didn't realize how new that was. I knew it was kind yeah. of new, but I didn't realize it was in the last yeah. two to three years. Yeah, it, it is. And a lot of the talent, you know, what, what do you need when you're, when you're doing startup companies? Well, you, you need, you need talent. And in the energy space, in particular, you need technical talent, mm -hmm. right? You, you need engineers, you need scientists. Um, our region has the highest per capita number of uh, chemical engineers in America by a long shot, by a long shot. And what is the energy transition about? Chemistry, basically, mm -hmm. right? It's about molecules, <laughs> really. Uh, and and so we're we're starting in some ways we are starting from a fantastic leadership position. Here's another interesting point. You hear a lot about hydrogen uh, and uh, the possibilities of of replacing um, fossil fuels with uh, with hydrogen as a particularly as an industrial source, right? To uh, to to use and there if they can be made ultimately. From renewable energy, they, they can be much they can be much cleaner burning. But there are a lot of issues with hydrogen, one, and one, one of which is it's highly combustible and it's hard to move around. And so, unless you're using the hydrogen where you're producing the hydrogen, it becomes a really expensive, difficult proposition. Not, you know, most natural gas pipelines can't take a ton of hydrogen. They can take up to about 15% hydrogen or something like that. So you need a bunch of dedicated hydrogen pipelines. Well, 60% of the dedicated hydrogen pipelines in America, that's 60%, are in greater Houston, Texas. 60%. So if there's going to be a major hydrogen hub, don't you want it? <laughs> don't you want it adjacent to where you can move the stuff around? When I, I, I took a trip to Boston to, to that Greentown Labs sponsored to meet a bunch of folks at, at MIT and other places who were doing a lot of really interesting work around around a bunch of these issues. And I met a guy who had a little, he's a postdoc working on a real whiz-bang new electrolyzer uh, and wanted to build a, a hydrogen electrolyzer company around it. And so I was just chatting with this guy about his idea, a brilliant guy, and, and, uh, <laughs> and I said, so when you make the hydrogen, how are you gonna move it around? And he said, what do you mean move it around? I said, well, unless you're using it where you're producing it, you gotta move it. And he said, well, yeah, we'll have to figure that out. And I said, let me ask you this. Do you think you'll ever be able to get a pipeline built between um, Boston and New York to move hydrogen? He said, mm, maybe not. I said, well, I can tell you where you can get one built, and that's in greater Houston, Texas. <laughs> uh, and so, the, the, so a long-winded way of saying at Hetty, we're very focused on taking advantage of the areas where we have a big built-in competitive advantage. Mm -hmm. And because of the ship channel, because of our infrastructure, because of our port, because of our geology, because of our talent, we feel like in certain areas of the transition, we have a big, big competitive advantage. CCUS is one, hydrogen is another mm -hmm. uh, uh, for sure. Uh, and end-to-end -end, uh, plastics recycling is another because of our petrochem world. Mm -hmm. Uh, so, uh, so there are a lot of areas where we have big advantages, and we just need to make sure that we exploit them, that we don't look up a decade from now or two decades from now in Atlanta or Chicago or San Francisco or Boston, you know, has, has 
become the place where well, it's happening. And I wonder if, and with all respect to Scott at HEB, who is kind of a local legend for many reasons. I love the guy, <laughs> just what he did during you know the freeze and how you know their supply chain. Um, I wonder how many groups were started post other chairman's time in in that role. And I, I, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. Well, well uh, you know, Scott, Scott drove a real focus on education uh, in, uh, in the business community very successfully. And uh, a new group has, has started called Good Reason Houston. Okay. It's actually not under the umbrella of the partnership, but, but, but the partnership is a, a fundamental backer of Good Reason Houston. And Good Reason Houston is uh, – I serve on the board of, mm-hmm. uh, of that, as, as does Scott. Uh, and Bob Harvey, the CEO of the partnership. Uh, it's backed by the Houston Endowment and, and others. And uh, the, the goal of Good Reason Houston is to dramatically upgrade uh, the quality of public schools in greater Houston. Uh, and so that, that's, an example of, of, that's an example of another initiative from the partnership that, that really has taken hold. And, and, um, and look, we just, I think the business community is, is actually convinced that if we don't have a public school system that works in our region, the likelihood that we can have the same level of prosperity going forward that we've had historically is is low. So, so uh, I think Hedy is very much in that same tradition, right? It, it's it's seeing a problem, and, and kind of coming together as a business community to attack it, uh, and then you know just getting after it. Uh, and it, it it sure helps. I will say what <laughs> you know what Scott Scott had a challenge I didn't have, uh, which is that. Um, he didn't have immediate commercial payoff for the participants, right? In the energy transition, there's terrific commercial, mm-hmm. you know, payoff opportunities uh, in in these in these companies uh, and in the technologies around it. And um, I think that's a big part of the reason we've got we've got our our business community focused on it. I want to just say that this is when I hear him talk like this. This is if you're not from Houston, if you're listening to this from all over, this is really what makes Houston special. It, it really is that. I remember I moved to Houston in the early 2000s. It was right after Enron. I had never heard of Enron. I was from Dallas. I'd gone to college. And yeah, I, it, it was, it's amazing to see how the community came together after that. And then there's all, you know, every city has its challenges. But to see what the city of Houston does for its own, it takes care of how it jumps in when there's a problem, it, it's amazing. And I hear you talking about the, the Houston partnership and how the business community comes together. It's not just the business community. Right. It's such a powerful area when it has to solve a problem. And I, you, you, going back maybe 10 or 15 minutes in this podcast, you mentioned how we get a bad rap for not wanting to be part of the solution. I, I agree with you. It lies, as Dan said. I mean, how can we, and I guess this is one way that we can all kind of jump into supporting that look, we are here to solve problems. We do want to be part of the solution. There is a big problem and big issue that needs to be solved. So I, again, I just, I love hearing you talk like this. It feels like this is the best of Houston, quite honestly, so. Yeah, look, I, I'm, I'm, um, I'm very excited to personally be involved in it because I think it is the best of Houston. And, and um, you know, we also work closely with our political leaders. We, we you know, on our, on our, uh, in our effort, we have our philanthropic institutions involved. We have our academic institutions involved. We have city government and county government involved. You know, in, in the area of CCUS, for example, um, one of the really, really important uh, kind of critical path items is to get 
um, is to get legislation, statewide legislation, in place that allows for the kind of clarity you, you, you need to do projects. And we're working closely with a statewide group uh, called the Carbon Neutral Coalition. It got started by Corby Robertson, a longtime Houstonian and- Cool well, guy. Uh, and hey, a, coal, a coal guy. Uh, C-O-A-L, and, not cool, coal. And, and, coal right, man. and um, th that group is uh, working with the partnership and we're, we're very engaged at the state level with the governor and lieutenant governor and the state legislature around getting a regulatory regime in place that will allow for these projects to go forward. So um, we can, look, we can make things happen uh, here, uh, but before you can make things happen, you kind of got to decide you got, that there's a problem to be solved. You got to want to do it. You got to yep. want to do it. And, and so our, our first step was, was in deciding there's a problem to be solved. Um, the coincidence step was to see the opportunity in solving that problem. <laughs> Uh, and then it, it's become a matter of kind of rallying, rallying all the players that need to be in the game to get in the game. And I think we've done a we've done a pretty good job. Uh, we've done a pretty good job of that. Everyone's got a role to play here. Yeah. Everyone, everybody does. And you know, it's interesting. One of the things we we found is that each company comes at this from a different point of view. And, and remember, I said in the beginning, we we have a dual challenge here. It's not just to drive down CO two emissions. It's to drive down CO2 emissions while <laughs> providing people with reliable and affordable energy today. Mm -hmm. And a lot of our companies are focused on that part, right? And, and it's not like we're going around and advocating to, you know, a onshore drilling company that they need to change their business model and pivot and do something different. We're not, we're not advocating for that or for you know, Apache uh, to do anything other than than produce hydrocarbons in the most cost efficient and cleanest way they possibly can. That's awesome, right? That that's that's an important piece of the puzzle too. That that we need to continue to have and and support and take care of and and advocate for. And one of the things I've been very clear about in in, in my work at the partnership and at Hedy is that I'm an advocate for the incumbent industry, big time. We, we need them, the world will stop without them, uh, and, uh, and we, need to, uh, we need to support them. And so uh, that's part of it too. But at the same time, we need to be finding ways to invest in new technology, to be using our balance sheets, our people, our expertise to solve these big new problems. Um, and some companies, frankly, are just better positioned to do that than others, right? If you're, if you're Shell, well, you've got a, you know, multi-hundred billion dollar balance sheet. They're simply, you you have more runway, uh, and and sort of running room to to do that than you do if you're a you know oil field services tools company serving the Eagleford, right? You don't have a balance sheet to do that. You don't have the expertise to do that. Uh, but Shell and BP and ExxonMobil and Chevron, you know, do. Uh, and so every company's coming at this from a different point of view, and we, and we need everybody. Is 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 the point? It's a it's a highly collaborative thing. Yep. Bobby, we would be remiss if we didn't. You spent a lot of time in the oil and gas business, and longtime investment banker to the sector. So, give us your. You've given us a lot about energy transition. Give us a little bit about oil and gas. I mean, okay. tell us where you think things are. You bullish or bearish on? gas prices? Is this capital discipline thing for real? Talk to us about the oil and gas business. 
Well, I used to have a partner named Dan Pickering, <laughs> and 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 uh, Dan Pickering had a saying at 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 uh, Pickering Energy Partners, which was the forerunner to TPH, that anyone caught saying it's different this time <laughs> is fired on the spot. <laughs> and and what Dan really meant by that was the energy business is a business of cycles, and understanding that and sizing your business that way and thinking about your investments that way is really critical to being to being successful notwithstanding all these transition issues that we're talking about uh, i still buy into dan's old maxim that uh we we still live in a world of energy cycles and it's it's very very easy to convince yourself that it's different this time Mm -hmm. So um, we're in a good part of the cycle now, and uh, sort of all the wind is at our back, uh, right? Uh, and there, there's nothing like uh, really expensive energy prices to get people focused on the fact that we actually need this stuff. Mm-hmm. And you know the, the combination of, of what's happened in the markets and what's happened in the Ukraine and COVID and you you put it all together, we've just got this witch's brew of, wow, all of a sudden people kind of get that we need this stuff. And I think that's a healthy thing, actually, uh, but because it's, it's leading to a more sane conversation around the dual challenge as opposed to the singular challenge of just lowering CO2 emissions. Um, but if we still have cycles, that probably means that at some point we're going to be in a softer part of the cycle, or and I, I think we probably will. Now, for now, uh, discipline is holding, and discipline is holding in two places. It's holding in the U.S. onshore business, uh, which was the main culprit in the lack of discipline that, that we had during that period of phenomenal growth of 08 to 18. And it's also holding in OPEC. And it needs to hold in both places, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? I have a friend who used to say every 15 years or so, OPEC decides they need to remind everyone who's boss. Right. And uh, and the the good news is it appears OPEC is bumping up up against their kind of spare capacity constraints, and they couldn't do a lot more right now, even if they wanted to. In the U.S., we actually could do a lot more than than we're currently doing. Not, you know, we can't do a lot more forever. <laughs> But we could do a lot more for a while. The The issue in the U.S. is the capital providers have decided they don't want us to do a lot more than we're doing. They kind of like low single-digit production growth. They like capital being returned to them. You're talking about investors here. Inve- investors yeah. broadly mm-hmm. broadly defined, both public market investors and, and private market investors. Uh, and, you know, look um, – if you if you've been in the oil and gas business for the past you know several years leading up to this last election, it's very easy to get annoyed with the Biden administration and a lot of the rhetoric that you hear out of the Biden administration uh, around the oil and gas business, particularly during an election cycle when uh, you know the, the oil and gas business gets talked about as if we're we are selling cigarettes to children. You know we're ju- we're just torching the world. Uh, and that's annoying, right? When when what you're when when you feel like what you're doing has has great social utility. But the truth of the matter is, the reason that production is flattened in the U.S. is not because of the Biden administration; <laughs> it's because of investors, right? And and uh, I had I had a meeting with 
um, around zero week with the deputy secretary of energy uh, in New York. And his question was, well, you know, do you think if we if we went around to the companies and ask them just kind of out of patriotic duty, please, please ramp up production and ramp it up aggressively, do you think they would do it? And I said, well, if I were you, I wouldn't spend much time on that conversation. I would go to Larry Fink at BlackRock and ask him, would his shareholders, would his money support the industry if they did that? <laughs> because that's ultimately the constraint, right? It's, it's, it's really a, a capital constraint mm -hmm. that's kind of changed the behavior of the U.S. producers. They, they're holding to it. Uh, certainly for now, Dan, and Dan lives and breathes this every day, uh, managing money in the space. They're holding to it for now. Private companies, however, are less constrained by that external capital. Uh, and at these commodity price levels, um, you'd like to put every rig you to work that you could put to work because of the returns associated with what you're producing are very, very attractive. And so my question is, will will uh, will the private companies um, s sort of you know upset the balance here? Um, and I think it's a little too early to tell. Uh, right now, the the world kind of needs a, a, a little more production, and and so they're they're providing it. But the question is, you know, how how will that be sustained or not? So the the industry's in a good spot. Finally. The oilfield services industry, which has been, uh, you know, it, it is, it's been a rough it's been a rough period for that world, right? Finally, they're back to generating decent returns on capital employed. Most of them, uh, they've got a little pricing leverage, and uh, and the world is healthier for them. I think you know, back to our Houston point, if there's any one subsector of the of the energy world where we are particularly dominant, it's in oilfield services. Right, I mean that intellectual capital sits it's here. It's the best. It is the best in the world, and you know, and ironically, not ironically, and interestingly, it's actually the easiest incumbent sector to shift and take advantage of energy transition. And right? and if you if you talk to those companies, uh, they are enthusiastically doing it, mm -hmm. actually, uh, but because their skill sets really do right. Uh, really do service a, a, and oil well service a, a, allow and for that, but but the oil services sector is doing better. The the midstream space is doing better. What what is clear though is that new company formation in the space is dramatically less, mm -hmm. right? So for the, for that period that I talked about, 08 to to eighteen, uh, I think in that period, no no no, from from I think the period was like from. 14 to 18, we had over 100 new upstream oil and gas companies started in the lower 48 with at least $200 million of, of equity committed to them, over 100. Per year uh, uh, or total? Uh, total. Yeah, okay. Total, over four years, yeah. I think it was. So 25 okay. a year mm -hmm. on, on average over four years. And over a third of those ended up with headquarters in Houston, right? That's a lot of new company yeah. formation. Now, that doesn't count oil services companies. That doesn't count midstream guys. That doesn't count petrochem guys. That's just in the upstream. Well, Really? That's it, just it was, upstream? It was incredible. It was incredible. And that's why we had, we, that's why we had that explosive growth. 
if you look at that period where we, when we went from 5 million barrels to 13 million barrels, it wasn't just, you know, Pioneer and Diamondback and Parsley and Chevron, right? It was a lot of private guys with a lot of private equity behind them building really sizable companies over that period of time. That has stopped. So we, we, can, we can look out today because those things take three and five and seven and 10 years to kind of, you know, build and know that we're not going to have that sort of new company formation in the space o- over this period of time. So what, what that means is I think we're at less risk of a flood of new capital coming to the business and kind of upsetting the apple cart. I think that's a good and, and healthy thing for, for the business. But, um, you know, I- investors live either in, fee- in fear or in greed. Right. And, and you always worry uh, that, that uh, greed is, is sort of the stronger sentiment of the two. And in periods of sustained high commodity prices, people will jump in with capital until returns get pushed down, uh, pushed down quite low again. So, you know, it sure doesn't feel like that's going to happen in the next year or two. But if we have sustained high prices for quite a long time, it's, it's, it's hard not to fear it. Two years feels like forever. I'll take two years. Yeah. And we'll worry about right. we'll worry about what happens two in years. years three. You would have seen two though. It's a great three. point on the new on the new company formation, especially manufacturing oil field services. If you kind of think about it, you would have seen a lot of new companies by now with hundred dollar oil or historically. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. you really would have, right, and they're Josh. just not there. That's for sure. Yeah, Bobby, you're you're a lawyer by. Well, you've got a JD. I was going to say by undergrad degree, but that's not actually a, <laughs> by training. An, yes, you're it? a lawyer by training. You're an investment banker. Those two things are historically associated with um, rough and tumble dynamics to them, let's say. But um, you're a really active philanthropist in Houston, so you're sort of going, you're breaking that mold a little bit. Talk to us about, you know, how did you get interested in this? What, what what drives you around philanthropy and and particularly for our podcast listeners some of the younger ones you know do you need to be a 50 year old guy to be a philanthropist or participate in nonprofit stuff so talk to us a little bit about your motivations well there are there are there are lots there are lots of ways of being of service to your community and uh, one of them is philanthropy and when people ask me about philanthropy, it, you know, <laughs> I remind them that unless you inherit it, the first thing you got to do is make some money. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and one of the nice things about Houston uh, is that I think um, entrepreneurship and um, and business are uh, respected and you know admired. That's not true everywhere. You know, by, by the way, but it, it very much is is true here. And there's a long tradition here of our community leaders being uh, being business people. And there's a long tradition of the business community in Houston really being engaged and trying to make it a better place. Now, Stephen Kleinberg, who's a really interesting guy. I would encourage you all at some time. You get, usually get Stephen Kleinberg for your podcast. Stephen Kleinberg is a sociologist uh, at Rice who runs something called the Houston Area Survey, mm-hmm. uh, where he has tracked sentiment in Houston over a long period of time. And one of the things Stephen also, always said uh, is that no one, you know, no one came to Houston because it was pretty. You know, <laughs> pe- people came to Houston to make money, right? right? 
that was that was the point of this. Uh, that was the point of the place, uh, really. Now, the, you know, the world has changed now. Now, increasingly, because of because of technology, um, in many professions, you can choose where you want to live uh, and work remotely. So, you know, Houston needs to be a place where people want to live, and uh, and I think we've we've kind of come to grips with that, and we've made it a better place to live collectively over the course of the past uh, you know decade decade or two. But my, my point is just that there's a lot of ways to be of, of service. And, uh, and I started trying to be of service as a very young uh, person um, by volunteering and giving my time and expertise where relevant. And then as I, I made money and could participate more philanthropically I started to do that as I made more money I did more of it uh, but I've always uh, been you know quite personally engaged mm-hmm. in the in in trying to make our community uh, a better place and it's across a wide a wide range of things uh, social services education public education higher education in my case at at, at rice uh, parks libraries um, uh, and and you know, Bobby, lot, is that because areas. because you like parks and libraries and rice, or because you think we need them? Is it is you're passionate about these things, and therefore, yeah. it's easier well, to do. Well, yeah, it's it's some of both, right? The things okay. that I'm just interested in. The, my my wife and I are big patrons of the arts mm-hmm. in, in general, and um, I chair the symphony board and Phoebe's chaired the ballet board and I chaired the SPA board and she's on the MFA board. You know, yeah. you'd have a hard time finding a, a big arts institution in Houston that we hadn't touched in, in some in some way. We believe that uh, engagement with the arts and having a vibrant um, arts community um, makes lives better for our citizens. It just does. Now, we also believe that in a, in a city where one in four families have trouble buying groceries once a month. Think about that. One in four families in greater Houston, Texas, as prosperous as we are, have trouble buying groceries month, once a month. We, we need to be engaged in social services and, and, and helping those people try to build uh, a better life here. We also believe that if we don't have a, a public education system that, that works, we will increasingly have a bifurcated society of haves and have-nots uh, that will ultimately undermine our democracy, and uh, we think that's a bad thing. Um, and so we're focused on education. You know, I really believe that one of the best things America does is higher education. Still, people from all over the world come to this country. Uh, because of the strength of our of our higher education uh, institutions and uh, uh, the um, the things that those institutions do for the world remain really really important to the world and they need our support and so uh, I also feel an obligation uh, to my institutions that that I feel like gave me so much to give back so. You know, p- part of part of my engagement is because uh, I feel it's a duty. Part of an obligation is because it's interesting and fun to me. Um, and you know, part of obligation is somebody needs to do it, <laughs> right? Mm. And, uh, and so, um, look, it also just makes for a more interesting, fun life for for 
you know, for me and my wife and my family. Um, so one of the great things about Houston is it's easy to do that stuff. If you want to be engaged here and be a leader, no one's going to ask you where you're from. No one's going to ask you what school you went to. No one cares, right? What they care about is do you have some, do you bring something to the table? Do you have something to offer? And if you do, you're going to be welcome with open arms. That continues to be the case in Houston. Uh, and, and that's what we love about living here. You know, when we, I spent the last part of my career at Goldman Sachs in, uh, in London, and we love living in London. We lived there five years. It's a great place. And of all the world's really kind of largest cities, um, I think London is the best place to, to, to live, at least of the ones that I've seen. But we, we needed to make a decision. Are we going to be kind of permanent expats and just finish out our career and our life in London, or do we want to, or do we want to come back here? And we decided to come back here in part because of the impact we felt like we could make here versus in a place like London. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and that's, it was very appealing to us and continues to be appealing to us. And it's why, it's why we live here. Wow. That and is, I'm just, no kidding. I'm just so fired up about Houston. I can't even tell you. <laughs> the, um. I mean, I, we're, the, I was a great answer and it's true. I, I'm, you're from Pineville, Louisiana. Where's Pineville? It's in the middle of the state, right on the Red River. Okay. And, but are you, Dan, are you from Houston? I'm not. Where are I'm you from, from? I'm from a tiny little town in Missouri. Okay. Maybe smaller than Pineville. Okay. I think I think Dan's town might have been smaller. 2,000 in, 2000 in my town. 14,000. Oh, that's right. It's 14,000 in my town. Near Houston. Near, near Houston, Houston, Missouri. Missouri. That's yes. right. Yeah. So I'm not from Houston either. And I, I listen to you talk and it's, it is all those things and yeah. get involved and jump into it. And, you know, if, if it's not you, then who, right? We yeah. all have to kind of step up. And I, I loved, I loved it. And the one little thing you said in there, it, you know, there's all these great reasons to do it. And if not the most important, it just makes for a great life, right? Yeah. right? The most yeah. important, it just adds value to my life. Yeah. Loved it. Great answer. So Bobby, you, you retired six or nine months ago. And um, so tell us about Artemis and what you're doing now. Well, uh, retired sounds more final than, than, <laughs> than the truth, uh, really. I've, I'm, I'm kind of it calling, is final interview. I'm calling yeah. this my sabbatical, actually, is what, I, was, what I'm calling this year. And I, I uh, just set up a, um, a uh, kind of platform that I'm calling Artemis, um, really to, to handle everything that I'm touching in the energy business. Uh, whether it's whether it's heady or just personal investing I'm doing in 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 the energy business I continue to to be invested in the business and and look for more and more ways to be invested in the business I think in particular looking for energy transition uh, oriented investments in the business um, but investments in the incumbent business as well so uh, I'm active as an investor uh, active leading heady and active generally in the in the whole kind of energy transition conversation. And it's it's a space where I feel like I have something to add. I, I do understand the incumbent uh, business. Uh, and uh, we need leadership from from uh, kind of our senior players in the business. And it's a, it's a place where I feel like I can make a difference. And so I do all of that under under the Artemis platform. Okay. Why did you pick Artemis? I like the name. Okay. Uh, and, and the goddess uh, of the hunt. And, and it's the, she's the goddess of the hunt. But if you're a Harry Potter fan, uh -oh. you, you will remember that there's there's an owl in Harry Potter named Artemis, mm. and um, and what is and the I'm mascot? A, and uh, I'm a rice owl. Yes, oh, okay. I guess so. I, I'm I'm 
I've never seen one Harry Potter book or movie. Well, there you go. Wow. I'm sorry. I missed it. It was that time when... You were in between? Yeah, no kids, too old for it. Just missed the whole time. Yeah. But I'll continue to be very active, Dan, in the the energy business uh, broadly. And uh, and in Houston, there's a ton to do, actually. And um, I'm having a lot of fun. A lot of fun doing it. Well, we'll know that you're completely ramped up when Artemis Capital Partners has a website. There you go. There, um, there will come a day. Yes. So <laughs> we, so the, the sabbatical will end when the website goes live. That's right. Um, so Bobby, Josh and I have this tradition of the lightning round. And so you've been very kind with your time. And we're going to ask you to, to give us some more insights on maybe things not as not as impactful as the energy transition or, or Houston. Um, I've screwed this game up many times, by the way. Yeah. So, Josh, you want to explain the lightning round? Apparently, you're only allowed to give one an- one word answers. Okay. So, that's where I tend to screw this game up. So I, t- I take direction well. So, <laughs> so yeah. Uh, no wrong answers, except if there's, there's one question that's definitely the wrong answer, but we'll find out if you can guess which one this is. You ready? You feel good? I'm ready. Okay. Golf or tennis? Tennis. Small town or big town? Small town. Cash or crypto? Cash. This will paralyze him. (laughs) Rice athletics or rice academics? Told you. Rice academics. Spoken for a four-year basketball letterman? Okay. Well, that makes me feel because he's tall. I was wondering. I, yep. We have to take a picture of him, and I, he's he's tall. He's in the middle. I made him sit down. I didn't. Yep. I didn't like the whole situation. What position did you play? I was a guard. One of the little guys. Oh, you threw that in. The, that's great. We're moving on. Will the world make net zero by twenty fifty? Yes. Pepsi or Coke? Coke. Puppies or kittens? Puppies. Opera or jazz? Opera. S&P 500 for the rest of the of 2022. Bullish or bearish? Bearish. Wind or solar? Uh, solar. Uh, E&P stocks or tech stocks? E&P stocks. Uh, 20% of U.S. auto sales as EVs by 2028, over or under? Um, over. Okay. Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings? Game of Thrones. Ooh. Will the Houston Texans make the Super Bowl in the next decade? Yes. That's You're the second person that says yes. It's, yeah. Real quick, so I, w- I want to know, you guys are clearly have a good rapport, good friendship. How did you guys meet? And uh, how did you guys meet? And then what's a great, what's a good story that – along the way that you just looked at Dan as when you guys were partners and said, this is, this is a great guy. I'm glad I'm partners with Dan. Um, so I had, uh, I'd left Goldman thinking I, wa- I wanted a, a second chapter, professional chapter, and I wanted to start an energy investment bank. Uh, and I went down the road actually trying to buy an extant one and couldn't make that happen. And, um, I had a colleague and, and friend who was also a, a, not a colleague, a client and friend who was also a, a client and friend of Dan's. 
And he said, I was talking to him about what I was looking to do, and he said, do you know Dan Pickering? I, I said, actually, I don't. I've heard of Dan, but I, I don't know him. And he said, well, you should go see him because, you know, he started this little research platform, and he's trying to decide what to do with it. He'd like to build it. Not really sure what's the next step. Y'all should know each other. So I went to see Dan, uh, and within an hour or two, it was clear that um, we should team up to build a, a first-rate energy investment banking platform. Uh, and we just saw we saw the opportunity, you know, the the same way. Uh, and uh, and also in his offices, which were crappy little offices over on the West Loop, he had a he humble had, beginnings. He, <laughs> Humble. He had a, he Crappy, had a, humble. He I had an him. air hockey table. Oh, okay. And I thought, well, I like that. This is my guy. Yeah. This, this is my guy. And uh, and we were great partners and had a, had a lot of fun doing what we're doing. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I think for both of us, it was a, a really kind of meaningful professional experience. Our third partner, Maynard Holt, joined uh, a year later, and, and Maynard's a fun, interesting guy. And um, we had other great partners who were starting with us, Jeff Tillery and Dave Purcell and Allie Pruner and Lance Gilliland and Chad Michael. And um, we just had, we, you know, better lucky than good. You know, our timing was good. The market was kind of heading our way. Uh, but we had a lot of fun building a, building a business uh, together. You know, I, this, this show tends to be more on the technical side, which is great. And it should be. It's, it's designed for... For that, um, I tend to be. I, I always like to ask people about a widget, but really, how did you build the widget? And, I, and I'm listening to you talk, and there's been a lot of these great points where I'm just I hear you. And I, did you know, really, kind of both of you guys? Did you know when you were doing this? Did you ever think to yourself, "Man, this is this. We're, I'm in the middle of the good times." Oh yeah, 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 yeah. We, Isn't that great? We did. That's we, really cool. We did uh, for sure. I, I I do think that there was something about the combination of the shale boom and putting the company together in the middle of it where you know that this confluence of events is is unlikely to repeat and so you sort of value something more when you know that it's it's hard to do and it's happening although i will say the energy transition is giving us a, a shale boom type of moment feels like the that. Di yeah the yeah, difference is that i don't know i remember i remember bobby celebrating his 50th birthday you know we ain't young guys anymore <laughs> so it's it's you know there's the other piece of that is kind of the point in your life right. as well so um energy transitions giving us another chapter it's just going to be a different chapter because you know you're not 40 years old anymore like, well good yeah because you got there's there's wisdom that comes with it as well That's and right. i'll tell you what i again i'm a guy that didn't grow up in houston and I've heard these names for a long time. I mentioned, I don't know if this was on air or off, air, off the air, but uh, what a pleasure, really. Is there, I just, I really appreciate your time today. Uh, it's, it's a great time to get to know you. You've been just, your openness has been awesome. I, we wish you the best of luck in your uh, sabbatical. And if you do come back to the world of, uh, you know, the grind, if you will, we wish you luck in that as well. Is there anything that you would like to talk about? You mentioned a bunch of different Charities? Is there anything particular that needs no, I, some extra I, attention? I, I guess I would I would just uh, commend you guys. Uh, this kind of stuff is really needed and important in the in the energy world right now, uh, and, and I think um, what what you're doing is valuable. So 
so keep it up. Uh, I think it's also important that we try hard to kind of, you know, reach beyond our normal, uh, you know, our, our kind of normal bubbles, if you will. And it's also important that we continue to, to challenge ourselves, right, about what we, our assumptions and what we think and what we believe. And um, there's a, I, I like a, a quote that says, it's a really good thing now and again just to hang a big question mark on everything you've always taken for granted. And I think when it comes to the energy transition, it's, it's, particularly, it's particularly relevant. Uh, and so, you know, I try to remind myself to, to do that and not to be too locked into the way that I've, I've always kind of seen the world. Uh, and uh, hopefully that's the way we grow and get smarter and get better. And, um, and, and you guys are playing a role in that too. So, so well done. But it's great to meet you, Josh, and love being with Dan, of course, always. Uh, and we're all in this together. We are. Man, I was going to, I had this whole thing to tell you how great we were, but you kind of just said it. Yeah, so he did he it. He nailed it for us. Bobby Tudor, yeah. CEO of Artemis Capital Partners. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Dan. Thanks, Thanks. Josh. Thanks, guys. If you uh, want to find us on any of our social media platforms, you can look us up at Energy and Transition. Uh, we are on everything, YouTube, uh, LinkedIn. So thank you very much. Enjoy your day. Thank you, guys. Thanks. Thanks.